Hello, everybody, and welcome to From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez. It's strange how taste buds change over time. All right, well, maybe it's not, but years and years and years ago, when I really first started to drink coffee, I hated it. I hated the flavor. I hated everything about it, except for the buzz it gave me. So I spent, of course, extra dollars to make that coffee a more palatable flavor. I went from mochas to lattes, adding extra flavor into it just so I could avoid that taste of coffee. Well, of course, after time and realizing I would like to spend my money elsewhere, I just dropped it down to getting a regular coffee with some cream and some additional flavoring, usually vanilla or caramel. And then after a while, it turned into the sugar-free options of vanilla and caramel. Eventually, I just dropped those off to the side as well and just stuck with cream. But now, if I'm at home and there's no cream around, I don't care. In fact, over the last week or so, even having the cream around, I don't care. For some reason, out of nowhere, I'm just really enjoying the taste of a black coffee. You know, it makes me feel a little like Charles Ingalls, because I'm pretty sure back in those days, in the Prairieverse, they had no creamer either. And with that being said, let's get started on today's recap. Today's episode is entitled The Sound of Children and debuted on February 5th, 1979. The episode was written by Carol and Michael Rochelle and directed by William F. Claxton. Our opening shot is of the schoolyard. It's recess, maybe. It could be before school. But what is happening is a baseball game. An eye roll, it's a boys-only game. Laura's in the background by the stairs, and the rest of the female student body are just watching. Albert is, of course, up to bat, and, of course, hits a home run. And getting back to home base, he is greeted by a young girl in a blue bonnet. She has some margarine she would like to share. Just kidding. She has a new spinning top that she would like to share with Albert. And Albert says, "Uh, Forget it. I don't play with girls, Holly. Holly stands there a little confused. Um, what about Laura? Albert claims, well, she's my sister, and it's different, and proceeds to put all of his attention back onto the ball game, which is then interrupted when Laura starts ringing the bell for school. As the student body gathers around the stairs, we are informed the Garveys are away, and everyone is awaiting their new substitute to show up. At the top of the stairs, Laura announces it's class time and we should be ready for her arrival. Inside. Come on, everybody. Willie, at the bottom of the stairs, inquires why. Laura states, well, you don't want to start off on the wrong foot. Willie responds with, what's it matter? I'll be standing on both of them when I'm in the corner. Oh, Willie. With everyone inside, Laura is... Once again, continuing to direct everyone to their seats and demanding quiet. Before taking his seat, Willie starts making plans with Albert to go fishing, and also Laura, who just happens to be standing close in proximity. As Albert turns his attention away, he stops, and the dreamy music starts. 
Enter our substitute teacher. She is getting all of Albert's attention. She takes her time in greeting the classroom and making her way to the front, and then introduces herself as Miss Elliot. She continues that now that everyone knows her name, it's time for her to learn everyone else's by taking attendance. And she inquires, where's the roll book? Albert jumps out of his seat, trips, and face plants in the middle of the room to try to be the first one to answer that request. Nellie, from her seat, says the roll book is in the drawer. As the class continues to laugh at Albert, Nellie states her name for Miss Elliot and also that her father owns the mercantile. Albert manages to crawl himself back to his seat. Over at Doc Baker's office, Caroline is in the waiting room slash office, and from behind the curtains we hear, Your diagnosis was correct, Caroline. Caroline, are you sure? Doc Baker comes out into the main room and then inquires, Why is that always the first question everyone asks? There's an LOL from Caroline, and also from me, but we're absolutely doing it about different things. Doc Baker then tells Mary to come out, and Mary, stepping into the main room, announces, I'm not a virgin anymore. I just thought you should know. Actually, what she says is, I'm going to have a baby. Grandparents, Charles and Caroline, are soon to be grandparents with a toddler child of their own. We're informed Mary is three months along, and she's excited. Adam has no idea. And at the same time, Caroline begins to plot when is the best time to tell Charles. I have to pick exactly the right moment. Her words, not mine. And in a very smart move, Caroline swears Doc Baker to secrecy. And, well, that exact moment is just the next scene as Caroline is running out of the office down Main Street, across the bridge, and over to the mill, yelling for Charles. And when Charles comes out, Caroline isn't quiet about it. She announces to everyone, Charles is going to be a grandfather. It's evening at the Hib. Mary and Adam are having a late dinner. It's date night. Mary says it's a chance for us to have some alone time to talk. She sets the flower arrangements down on the table, and we are informed that dinner is a casserole. Adam is hoping for chicken. Mary, meanwhile, wants him to stay focused on the conversation they have yet to start. It's at this time there's a knock at the other end of the room. It's a young student. His name's Eli. He's inquiring where the uh, toolbox is located. Apparently, Hester Sue is locked in the water closet. Adam offers to help Eli out, but Eli says, Nah, I can handle this. He then continues, It wouldn't matter, only he's got to use the water closet. When Eli leaves, Mary tells Adam to sit. But Adam, I can't. I smell something burning. And running into the kitchen, Adam takes that casserole out of the oven and states, It is chicken. And bringing it back to the table and having a seat, Mary is ready to start that conversation until, once again, Eli has returned, this time with the doorknob in his hand. I think I did something wrong. 
Adam gets up and starts to guide Eli back to that water closet. And this is when Mary says it. I'm gonna have a baby. Adam is already out of the room when he hears this, but he responds with, don't start without me. And then makes his return. Excuse me? A baby? The two of them hug over this joyful news. It's the next day or so. We're at Plum Creek and Caroline is going down memory lane as she's bringing out all of her collected baby gear and passing it on to Mary. She refers to having a baby as a shared family experience. Mary, well, everyone except for Adam's father. Caroline, standing upright. Oh yeah, he has one. All Mary knows about Adam's father is he's a lawyer. And other than that, Adam's not too open about sharing more information. Caroline then suggests to Mary that she should interject herself by writing a letter to Adam's father. You know, he is your father-in-law. It would make him happy. Plus, who doesn't like hearing news they're going to be a grandparent? Mary thinks this is a great idea. He'll love me. From there, we cut to New York. I'm going by the delivery carriage that says Coney Island on it. There are cobblestone streets, horse-drawn carriages, and people. Lots of them. From there, we find ourselves inside the office of Mr. Kendall, attorney at law. He's on the, um, the telephone, talking with Mr. Radcliffe about some merger deal, whatever. The big takeaway is, as he's having this conversation, he's opening up a letter he's received from Walnut Grove. After reading its contents, he calls for his executive assistant and responds with a telegram. He will be arriving soon. We cut to the hib. Mary and Adam are awake late at night, and they're discussing Mary's actions. Mary claims that she reached out because Adam never let her know anything about him. What did he do wrong? Adam responds, nothing. Not one thing. To me or for me, since the accident. It's like I no longer existed. And this isn't new information. We heard all about this back in Winoka Warriors and Blind Journey, Part 2. Mary encourages Adam to have some patience with her father, just the way he has patience with all of the students. Adam, you think everyone's like your dad. Mine isn't. And Mary argues, well, maybe he's changed. Well, why else would he visit? You just need to give him a chance. All that stuff happened in the past, but he's still your father. And she concludes, it's the best thing to do for the family. From one school to another, Miss Elliot is in the front of the room and offering up extra credit for those interested in some basket weaving. At which point, the boys groan until Miss Elliot says, well, you can all go play baseball. As all the boys head out, Laura raises her hand and asks to opt out as well. And upon being granted permission, Laura nudges Albert to, come on, let's go. Albert I don't want to. Laura inquires, what's wrong? Are you sick? Looking at his sister, Albert states, you heard her. I'm going to make a basket. He thinks it will make a special gift for his new niece or nephew. 
We're back at the Hib. Mary is doing some gardening out front with Eli. He says his mom had a baby once. Mary, yeah, that's why she's your mama. Shaking his head, Eli responds, no, another one named Lucy. But my mama chose her over me and left me with Miss Terhune. Mamas only have time for one baby. You'll see. With a slight chuckle, Mary excuses that and says, well, I have a school full of children. What's one more? And making a promise to Eli, she says, nothing's gonna change. We cut to Main Street, Walnut Grove. There's a stagecoach arriving in front of the post office. Mary and Adam are there to welcome Mr. Kendall to Walnut Grove. As he climbs out of the stagecoach, introductions are exchanged. He instructs Mary to call him father. And looking at Adam, Mr. Kendall places a hand on his shoulder and says, It's been a long time. Adam, with a smile on his face, responds, It's been too long, father. We cut to dinner time at Plum Creek. It's a huge family dinner. Mr. Kendall brought a Bordeaux Claret. It's a red, red wine, and that's no lie. It's also from 1865. Carrie, that's older than me. Do you have anything newer? Mr. Kendall, looking at Carrie, unlike you, wine improves with age. He pops the cork and knocks Carrie over. Just kidding. He hands the cork to Charles. Charles is confused and inquires what he's supposed to do with it. He's instructed to huff it, sniff the cork. Charles, hmm, smells like wine. Mr. Kendall responds, fantastic. If it had smelled like cork, it just means it would have been ruined because of an air contamination. Charles, I'll be darned. The more you know. Before pouring a glass of wine, Mr. Kendall sets the bottle down and tells everyone that it needs to breathe. As the wine breathes, Laura and Albert talk about the new information they've learned about wine and who they plan to share it with. Meanwhile, Carrie is fixated on the bottle and then announces, um, it's not breathing. I think it's dead. And the whole table LOLs at Carrie, not with her. After dinner, Mary and Adam return to Hib and to their bedroom. The two of them are celebrating a good night. Adam takes Mary into her arms and thanks her for writing to his father. You're right. People change. They suck face for a moment before we cut to the next day. Outside, Hester Sue is leading a group of children away, and we spot Eli once again in the flower bed. At this moment, Mr. Kendall is showing up and making his way inside the building. And standing in the hallway, looking into the classroom, not making himself known, Mr. Kendall continues to watch. Adam is behind the table, taking attendance. Susan and Thomas are both in class today. A Benjamin Stone is called, and he comes running into class and bumps into Mr. Kendall. Again, who was standing silently there, the entire time. And realizing his father is there, Adam takes this moment to introduce his father, Giles Kendall, my daddy. Giles has shown up at the school unannounced, unexpected, because he has something important he wants to share with Adam. 
and the two of them were together last night. Why didn't he make plans then? The two men step outside onto the porch, and Giles does not wait. He wants Adam and Mary to return to New York City and live with him. And not only that, Giles mentions that he heard of a lawyer in Philly who is blind. Giles' plan is to have Adam attend the best law schools in New York and get a job at his firm. Adam is kind of uh, astounded by the opportunity, but takes a moment to inquire, what about the school? Giles Kendall says to his son, I figured you could do more for your folk in the courtroom and not the classroom. He tells Adam to have a talk with Mary and to think about it. I owe this to you. And just as he's about to exit, he invites himself over for dinner that evening. And as Giles Kendall's leaves the hib and Adam heads back inside, the camera moves to poor Eli, who's having a moment of abandonment once again. We are back at the school. Baseball is once again being played outside, and that basket weaving is occurring on the inside. Miss Elliot is going around and checking on everyone's work, and that's when Nellie steps forward and presents hers. I'm all done, Miss Elliot. And it is one fancy-looking basket. It's such great work. That's until Miss Elliot flips it and reverses it, the basket, that is, to reveal a price tag on the bottom. And this is not the first time one of the Olsen children has tried to pass off work that wasn't their own. Looking around the room, Nellie Olsen calls this all silly. I don't get it. Why make a basket when you can just buy it? Restraining herself from rolling those eyes and delivering it with a smile, Miss Elliot says Nellie is missing the point. She then leaves to check in on Albert and his basket, which is bigger than him. Miss Elliot reveals that she's never seen a basket equal to this one. Albert continues his work. We cut to Charles at the mill, and Mr. Kendall is coming in the scene for a visit. And he's cutting straight to the point and tells Charles his plan about bringing Adam and Mary to New York City so Adam can attend law school and become a lawyer. Oh, and how he's going to pay for it all. This is when Giles Kendall then tries to get Charles to convince Adam to accept this offer. Charles is not the person for the job, seeing how he just got his daughter back from Winoka. In fact, Charles says, it's not my place. Giles Kendall informs Charles the city is the best place for a new life to be born. And not just because of the hospitals, but, but also because of the vast opportunities. Plus, my place is huge. Taking a sip of water, Charles exclaims that happiness is not measured by room dimensions. Giles Kendall inquires, does Charles want his granddaughter to grow up inside of a blind school? Charles takes the moment to explain his parenting style, that when his children are under his roof, they follow his rules and he helps guide their decisions. But when they're on their own, they make their own decisions. He's not getting involved. Well, 
Giles, Kendall is not used to hearing the word no, especially from country folk, and he leaves in a little huff. It's evening at the Hib. We're there for that planned dinner, of course. Everyone is having a seat. At this time, Mary's been informed about Giles Kendall's offer. We're also told it's an open invite. Adam can take however long he needs to decide. At this moment, Giles Kendall pulls out a gift for Mary. It's a brooch, and he tells her it's a thank you for all that you've done, bringing my son and me back together, as well as making me a grandfather. He tells Mary to continue having a seat as him and Adam go fetch the meal. It's night over at the barn at Plum Creek. Charles is finishing up a baby cradle and he's adding a choking hazard. He's stringing a bell suspended from a string end to end, three of them actually, to serve as an alarm in case the baby tries to crawl out of that cradle. Oh, it should also be noted, Charles told Caroline about his conversation with Giles Kendall earlier that day. They have to make their own decision. Caroline calls him out, however. You don't want the two of them to go. Charles. Oh, oh, Adam can go. I just don't want Mary to leave. Just kidding. He says he has no intentions of interfering. So by not sharing your feelings with them... That's how you plan to not interfere? Charles, I'm not interfering. And cutting to the chase, Caroline, okay, now tell me the truth. And Charles spills the tea. He's afraid. He's afraid if Mary moves away with Adam that he's never going to see her again. Not only that, he would never see his grandchild. If I was to say something... I would tell them to stay right here. Over at the Hib, in bed, Mary and Adam are both awake and having a discussion. Mary is calling this a chance of a lifetime. Adam, suppose. I mean, it is my future, the baby's future. But what about you, Mary? What about your future? Mary, I I'm cool. We can leave as long as it's you and me. We're in this together now. We're family. Adam then inquires about the rest of Mary's family. Mary? <laughs> Forkham? Just kidding. Sort of. She says, I have to put our family first. Now make me proud. And it sounds like the decision has been made. After a kiss goodnight, just a kiss, no sucking face. Adam rolls over, and we get a shot of Mary facing up at the ceiling. Although she said yes, we know she's having second thoughts. We find Albert carrying that huge basket over to Miss Elliot's place. She's apparently subletting at the Garvey estate. He's arrived asking for help with finishing up this basket. Miss Elliot agrees to do so, however, offers up some freshly baked cookies first. As Miss Elliot is retrieving a plate of cookies, Albert inquires to Miss Elliot if she's ever been in love, and how do you tell someone that you love them? 
Miss Elliot with a smile says, it can be very challenging to tell that to another person, especially for a man. Fear of rejection, according to Miss Elliot. As Albert is taking in this information, he also receives the news that Miss Elliot is engaged. And it's three weeks until the wedding. It's the day after she leaves Walnut Grove. Albert gets up, announces he has somewhere else to be at that moment, turns down the cookies, and drags the basket out of the house. Doing a slight walk of shame, our blue bonnet girl, Holly, she tells Albert she just left Plum Creek. She headed over there because she baked some cookies that she wanted to share with him. Albert accepts one, takes a bite, and tells Holly they're delicious. Holly then invites Albert to go, where else? Fishing. And off they go. Over at the Hib, Mary's about to have a talk with Eli. It's okay, Mary. He knows. She begins, I grew up in Wisconsin. I had to leave my friends and family. And even though I had to leave them far away, they're still very close to me. And they'll always be special. Eli, um, so you're leaving. Mary, yes, I love you no matter where I am. And while it looks like she's trying to cry in the moment, it looks like she's about to throw up. She follows those looks of dry heaving with saying, when I smell of roses, I'll think of you. And she immediately stands up and she makes a noise. And it is clearly something's up. Heading inside, Hester Sue helps get Mary into bed and then heads out to go fetch Doc Baker. It's evening and there's somber music. Yes, Mary had a miscarriage. As accepting of the news as Charles and Caroline are, Giles Kendall is not and is demanding answers. Adam simply wants to see his wife. Giles demands to know from Doc Baker, the baby's gender. It was a boy, wasn't it? Doc Baker delivers a slight nod, and Giles Kendall leaves. Doc Baker makes his way over to Charles and informs him he'll return in the morning to check in on Mary. Caroline continues to hold on to her husband as they both cry, and the music swells. It's could be the next day, Caroline is attempting to spood feed Mary. She's not having it. I'm not hungry. I won't see trees or my baby's first smile or even have the baby I was carrying. How much more am I supposed to take? Remember, Mary just turned 16 at the beginning of the season. Yeah, Mary's been through a lot. She tells Caroline to go away. Caroline realizing right now is not the best time for tough love, Caroline, leaves the room. Downstairs in the classroom, the children are heading out for recess. Caroline tells Adam that there's no change in Mary. Adam, well, perhaps we should follow through with the plan and leave. Nodding her head, Caroline says, whatever you think is best. Back upstairs in Mary's room, Eli makes an entrance, and closes the door behind himself. Mary begins that, you can take the tray that's on the table. Tell Hester Sue I wasn't hungry. Eli, I'm not going to do that. 
Then she'll know I was here. The children have all been told to not disrupt Mary. Mary, oh, is that why it's so quiet? Well, I don't feel like talking, Eli. And Eli? That's okay. You can just listen. His words, not mine. He begins by saying he's sorry for Mary's loss, and he knows how much she wanted to have a baby. He continues by saying, so it got me thinking. Maybe, maybe I could be your little boy. I know I'm not a baby, but you can't see me. I know my mama didn't want me, and well, since I came here, I was wishing you were my mama. And figuring since we both need someone so bad, we could both pretend. Think about it. I'm less trouble than a real baby. I'll try my hard to be my best for you. Mary pulls Eli in close, and they both start to cry. We cut to the hotel room of one Giles Kendall, packing. There's a knock at the door. It's Adam, obviously. And, well, guess what? Giles Kendall is now trying to persuade Adam that leaving Walnut Grove at this time is not the best for Mary. As Giles tries to continue, Adam, I've heard this all before. Why now? It then dawns on Adam, you just wanted the grandchild. I need you to answer me, father. Adam stands up and makes his way over to the bed, and this is when he feels the half-pack luggage laying there. Leaving so soon, Giles Kendall admits he was going to say so on his way out. I have to be at the office on Monday? Adam, I understand. You still can't stand to look at me, can you? With a smile, Adam says goodbye to his father. Back over at the hib, Mary is out of bed and putting on a pair of shoes. Adam makes his entrance, and Mary, Mary lays claim to the two o'clock class. We don't have much time left, so I want to spend as much of it as I can with my children. Adam claims there's no hurry. Mary, I want to teach. I want to think of somebody besides myself. Adam then spills the tea about leaving and how they're not. Well, on his first try, he says they won't make it because his father's leaving that afternoon. When he tries to explain it a second time, he says he wouldn't mind going to New York City, but he knows that he's needed more here at the school. He continues how heading to New York was actually really unfair to Mary. Mary then cries her confessions that she's been wanting to stay the entire time. Adam, you swear? Mary, by the moon and the stars in the sky. This is when she really starts to lose her voice and starts to ugly cry. I got you, I got my family, I got my children, and the sound of my children. Crying Mary and crying Adam kiss not suck face, and hug each other's faces. Let's go teach our children. We get a final shot of the exterior of the Harriet Olson Institute for Advancement of Blind Children. 
or simply just the hip. The camera pulls back as the closed caption tells us young Thomas is only able to recall one of 19 presidents. Adam Kendall tells Thomas, as well as everyone else, that he's going to learn about the rest of them and so much more. Because that's why Mrs. Kendall and I are here. All right, so I wasn't able to locate any blind lawyer who was around in 1880-something in Philadelphia. In fact, when I simply googled first blind lawyer in history, the name Hobbin Germa popped up, who was the first blind death graduate from Harvard Law. However, I wasn't looking for the first one to graduate from Harvard Law. I was just looking for the first one in general. And that's how I came across Roger O'Kelly, who was America's first black deaf-blind lawyer. And in one of the summaries, it says that he also went blind from scarlet fever. However, his came back, but he did end up losing his hearing. But he graduated from Shaw University and was licensed to practice law in North Carolina around 1908, which is only four years after a Miss Helen Keller had graduated from Radcliffe College. Roger O'Kelly then graduated from Yale University, becoming the second deaf person of any race to graduate from there eventually years later having a private law practice. And actually, I do have a quick correction. As I was going through the episode and trying to find content for that Instagram account that goes along with this podcast, I was quickly scrolling through the episode and the part where Giles Kendall tells Adam about that blind lawyer, he says the lawyer's name is Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R. So with that bit of information, I went ahead and looked up blind lawyer mayor and i actually came up with something this time around and it wasn't for a lawyer named mayor but for a sculptor a german sculptor named aloise mayor who is famous for creating a sculpture entitled blind justice which is a well-known sculpture that depicts a woman holding up a a set of scales in one hand and holding a sword in the other, all the while being blindfolded. The sculpture itself is a representation of the Greek character Themis, goddess of justice. So thank you to mythopedia.com for some information about Greek goddesses, and a thank you to invaluable.com, mutualart.com, and askart.com, all of them which are mostly just auction sites that talk mostly about his art, but not really about the man himself. So although Giles Kendall may not be referring to any living person, but at least we are all now aware of Mr. Roger O'Kelly. And thank you to the Washington Research Library Consortium.org, as well as DeafChildren.org and DBpedia for your information. And with that, let's get to reviewing and rating this episode. Wow, what an episode. We had an episode that continued to push the story of the Ingalls forward. We were introduced to Mary in the pilot as a child moving into her tween years. And here we are, Mary is now a grown woman in the Prairieverse standards. She has a career. 
she has a husband. So of course the next thing for us to see is her to start a family. And I think it's rather impressive that instead of having an episode that is packaged up nicely and finishes on a high note, we don't get that here. And in this episode, we are presented with that possibility of losing a pregnancy. They're few and far between, but this is one of our Little House episodes where it's not always a happy ending. The plague, a soldier's return, the blizzard, my Ellen. And in all those other cases, it was something that was affecting the town or another citizen of Walnut Grove. But here, this is just a loss that only affects the Ingalls and Kendalls. This episode also introduced the idea of Charles and Caroline becoming grandparents. So they're moving up the ladder as well. And I know it shouldn't seem strange, you know, hypothetically, if Mary had delivered the baby and it grew up side by side with baby Grace, growing up side by side with your aunt or uncle, which once upon a time, I did know someone who was actually three years older than her uncle. And what about our quote unquote villain for this episode, Giles Kendall? I love that only after knowing Adam Kendall since the end of season four to now, and only hearing a little bit about his history, we actually get to see part of that history in the form of his dad, Giles, showing up. And unfortunately having to learn how uninterested he is in his son. And apparently he's not a patient man to realize that these two are definitely going to go at it again. I mean, try for it again. And it's not just the fact they're newlyweds, I mean, we've already seen how they kiss. Giles definitely let his emotions just overtake him. It will be a long time coming if he ever sees a grandchild. And then speaking of children, what was the point of the other storyline involving Albert and Laura? Or really just Albert? I don't know, since the last episode, we didn't have to see him involve in any sort of love story that he gets his own one here. And who knew Holly Hobby was going to make a guest appearance in the Prairie Verse? And what is happening to Laura, who is turning into Mary 2.0, but let's say more extreme? I mean, I know Mary was the nerd of the family, but now that she's gone, does Laura feel that she has to take her place? Or did she realize that that dream of becoming a teacher does require a little bit of work? Because in addition to all that schoolwork, she's now ringing bells and telling students when to have a seat. So it does seem Mary is having influence on Laura, now becoming the school nerd. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just we're seeing her change a little bit more from her childhood antics now. So everyone's growing up. Except for Carrie. And speaking of Carrie, or carrying... Let's talk about this week's Little House moment, which goes to Eli when he tells Mary, you don't have to talk. You can just listen. And him sharing how much both of them have this loss and all they're missing is essentially a role that 
one another can fill. Eli? Eli's making his own family. And although this seems to be the thing that starts Mary's rebound, I imagine she's still going to have some days where she just gets kind of hit with feelings. And for the time being, she's aware there's someone, Eli, who wants to love her in a way that only a child would love their mother. And with that, let's get to rating this episode. Ugh. Other than us having to watch Albert gush over Miss Elliot, I loved this episode. Again, I loved this episode. Again, we had something that moved the entire saga of the Ingalls forward, and we didn't end on just a happy note. There were shades of gray, but we had a silver lining. We were finally introduced to a character in person after they were only mentioned pretty much at the beginning of the season. I mean, that's 10 plus episodes. Just like Caroline, I had forgotten Adam Kendall had a father. So having this being brought up just, ooh, if it would have been done throughout the entire series up to this point, oh, this series would have been phenomenal. I mean, imagine if throughout season one and two, we got a letter from Charles' parents. And then magically in season three, we get introduced to them. Or just imagine former postmistress Grace Snyder Edwards name-dropping people when she's, of course, talking about people's mail. Imagine if Caroline had gone in and all of a sudden she's like, oh, here's a letter for Miss Julia Sanderson. I wonder how she's doing with those three children. And then a few episodes later, we could just meet them, as we did with Giles Kendall. But anyway, overall, fantastic episode. And that is why we are going to give this episode, The Sound of Children, a 4.75 bonnet rating. Again, if we didn't have to watch the misadventures of Albert and his basket and Holly Hobby and Miss Elliot, this would have been, despite its subject matter, a perfect episode. And those are just some of my thoughts and feelings about this episode. And as always, I wouldn't mind hearing any thoughts or feelings you have about this episode or any previous episode or season. From Plum Creek with Love at Gmail or the Instagram is where you can reach out with any of those thoughts or feelings. Or if you just want to drop a note that says, hi, hello, enjoying your podcast, you would hear back from me. And as always, leaving a rating or review on your platform of choice if it does have that as an option, as always, is greatly appreciated and will help spread the word about this podcast here. And with that, we come to the end of another episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez, and until next time, take care.